thank the Lord for his word to us this morning through prophecy. We didn't coordinate that, but that lines right up with the sermon for this morning. So God is good. Praise the Lord. We're continuing uh, a series that I started the last time Pastor Wallace was away, whenever that was, with a couple sermons on different aspects of the life of Christ, on Jesus. And so we started that. We looked at Christ from Isaiah 53 and how amazing it was that this was all orchestrated throughout the scriptures way before Jesus ever came, that God laid out the life of his son in scripture so clearly through prophecy in Isaiah 53. And then we looked at a message called Finding Jesus in the Old Testament and, and uh, went through a whole lot of New Testament scriptures and how often the New Testament um, apostles and writers of the, the New Testament books would point to the Old Testament to show how Jesus was clearly seen in the Old Testament. And that carried on to a Sunday school series as well that we did here during Sunday school. But we're going to continue on the, the series of looking at the life of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to be looking at him as the head of the church and the head of our lives. It's a, the message is a, a culmination of a theme that I've noticed throughout as I'm, I've been reading in the New Testament lately in the, started in the Gospels earlier in the year, now I'm in the Epistles. So reading through, you know, Ephesians and Galatians and Philippians and Colossians and, and, and there on after that. But it's a, a theme that I've noticed running throughout quite a number of those Pauline Epistles. And now we're in the Christmas season. Preaching about Jesus fits perfectly in the Christmas season. Actually, it fits perfectly as a Christian at any time. <laughs> you know, our life is about Jesus. So Christmas should all be about Jesus, but our whole Christian life should be about him. But specifically, and, and I'll tie it back to this at the end, but as Christians at Christmas, it's so easy, and we say this probably every year, but it's so easy to get caught up in all the, the goings-on of the season, to get caught up in the cleaning, to get caught up in the shopping, to get caught up in the cooking, to get caught up in the decorating, to get caught up in the baking, to get caught up in the get-togethers, to get caught up in the presents, the gift-giving and the gift-getting, to get caught up in family get-togethers, to get caught up in special services, to get caught up in singing Christmas carols. And many of these, most of these, I would say maybe all of these are good things. But we have to make a vigilant effort to remember that Christmas isn't mainly about those things, but each of those, in a way, is, is a celebration of Jesus coming to earth. Christmas is about Christ. That's what the holiday is for. Otherwise, we just have a nice holiday with some time off and we get to do all these nice things. But Christmas is about Christ. And so I've titled this morning, Holding Fast to the Head. Holding Fast to the Head. The head, obviously, being Jesus Christ. And this is not just looking at Christmas, this is looking at our whole life. And we're going to look at two main passages. We're going to be going through uh, quite a lot of scripture this morning, but not jumping book to book, just looking through a couple of the passages from Paul's epistles where he talked about Jesus being the head. And we're going to see uh, a common theme here and come to a conclusion about how we keep Christ as the head amongst everything in our lives the first passage we're going to go through is in Colossians chapter 2. Excuse the noise as I adjust this a little bit so I can see. There we go. Colossians chapter 2. And 
I will highlight some verses and read some verses here, and I'm calling this the the corrective passage or the, the negative passage. Paul's talking to the Colossians here, and he's talking about an example of somebody or examples of people who have left Christ as their head and and what that looked like for them. And he warns the Colossians uh, to avoid that. So again, this is the, the warning, the don't let this happen to you passage. Paul starts this in, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 1. And we note right here in Colossians 2, 1, that the, the Colossians hadn't seen Paul face to face. Now, the city of Colossae was one of the major cities in Asia Minor, the most main city of Asia Minor being Ephesus. And Paul definitely ministered in Ephesus. He ministered around Ephesus. But Colossae was about 100 miles away. And Paul says, I was, I was never able to get there. So he's, he's writing to people who he had never met. So this is the background, the understanding that we come into this portion with. He's sharing some serious truths with them that he's not been able to tell them in person um, but he wants to make sure that they know what he's going to say. And verses four and five gives us the reason he's going to say what he's going to say. And that is in Colossians 2, 4, and 5. It says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. We're reading out of the English Standard Version today if you're trying to follow along in, in your Bible or up here on the screen. So Paul's saying, I'm writing what I'm going to write to you so that no one can delude you with plausible arguments. So if somebody comes and starts saying things that sound really logically good, I want you to have a basis in scripture for how to decide whether it is actually um, good or whether it is not. And in verses six through 10 then, or we'll read verse, we'll just read this through, verses six through 10. This is how he starts this now, giving them an understanding so that they're not going to be deceived if somebody comes in with some good sounding teaching. He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So here's the head passage, Jesus as the head. So in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And Paul tells them in, in verse six, we read, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord in this way, so walk in him and you will be rooted and you will be built up and you will be established in faith. You must remember that it is Christ who has filled you and he is the head of you in all rule and all authority. And if you can remember that, no one will be able to take you captive by philosophy or empty deceit or by um, human tradition or says the elemental spirits of the world, which is just holding human traditions and rituals and things and thinking that those earn salvation is what Paul's saying. Because they're coming, he's coming from a Jewish background where they, they believe that and they would go around and try to teach that. Now Paul turns in verses 11 through 15 
And he talks about the awesome things that Christ has done for us. And we're going to see this as a theme. When Paul talks about Christ as the head, he goes into all the things that Christ has done as our head for us, his body. Colossians 2 verses 11 through 15. I want you to notice how much this points to him. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Notice all the, the in him and the with him and the, all the things that God has done for his people as the head and how much he loves his people and cares for them as the head of all rule and authority. And it's on this basis then, now we get to the, the crux of the main part of the passage here about keeping Christ as the head. And again, this is the corrective passage. And Paul's going to talk about somebody who has not done this. And it starts in verse 16, Colossians 2.16 with a therefore. So when you're reading your Bible and you see a therefore, go back and look in context. What, what is he saying? What is he pointing to? Well, he's pointing to this. He doesn't want the people to be deceived. He wants them to understand that Christ is the head. He wants them to understand that Christ has done all of this work for them. In Colossians 2.16, it says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. And we have to remember this in an Israelite context with their law. And they had all sorts of ritualistic things that they did in their daily walk. And this is what Paul's referring to. So he says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. I think we referenced this in the Finding Jesus in the Old Testament, that all of these Old Testament things were just a shadow that points to Christ as the fulfillment of these things. It doesn't mean necessarily we have to balance this, that celebrating any of these, you know, is it wrong to keep a Sabbath day in honor to the Lord? You're waiting for me to answer your question? No, we're all here on a Sabbath day. It's not wrong to honor God in the Sabbath, you know, or, or in a, a special feast or a celebration or even Christmas time. We do that as a special thing we remember for Christ. But we have to remember that these point to Jesus. That's why we do them. It's about him. And so in verse 18, he says, let no one disqualify you, which is interesting that somebody would think they could disqualify somebody else in their Christian walk. Nobody can disqualify us in our Christian walk but us. We can do it ourselves. But Paul's referring to people who think and point at others and say, oh, they're disqualified. They don't follow all these things. They don't do these things. They're disqualified. But Paul says, don't let that get to you. Don't let, let no one disqualify you, insisting on, and the ESV here says, asceticism, 
That's like a pious self-denial, I think would be a good description of that. It's, it's, not, it's not doing things that you think will help you in your walk with God. Is that bad? It can be taken way too far. Some people do extreme harm to their own body. That's called asceticism, um, and that gets bad. But denying ourselves in certain ways to help us follow Christ is good. But Paul is saying this person is insisting on everybody doing that and, and on worship of angels going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous, or that literally means sinful, so a sinful mind has brought pride um, to their, in the way, their way of thinking. Verse 19 is the crux of this whole passage, though, on what makes something right or wrong in our Christian life. Not holding fast to the head. So these ones, this, this person is doing all of these things, keeping all of these celebrations and Sabbaths and, and feasts before the Lord and pointing at others saying they're disqualified because they're not doing it. And the person is living a, 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 a I don't know, self, a, a life where they're denying themselves things and, and yet they're not holding fast to the head. They're not holding fast to Christ in all of these and the sad thing is, is the person, while well, is, is actually probably disqualifying themselves because Christ isn't their head. They seem to be doing good things on the outside, but missing it in their walk with the Lord. Let's carry on because Paul shares more light on it. So not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. How does the whole body grow in their growth, in their walk with the Lord, by holding fast to Christ, who is the head. Verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits or all those rituals of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations or, or think these are still regulations to follow with the don't handle, the don't touch, and all the Old Testament things with the Levitical law? Verse 22, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed, pay attention to this, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, again, pious self-denials and severity to the body, but they are no, of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Why not? Because Christ isn't the head. Because Christ is not the head. And so it's important to remember this. It can be so subtle, and we'll notice this in the other passage we're looking at as well, that it seems like, and Paul even says this in verse 23, there's an appearance of wisdom in this. Like, wow, that person is living a very godly life. Look how they follow and deny themselves and follow all these things. And yet, if Christ isn't their head, they're just veering off course and missing it. We, and, and we don't follow the Old Testament law, and for the most part, this isn't really us in that way, but we need to make sure in our Christian life that we're not simply just doing and, and, and doing and doing and thinking it's about us, but missing Christ as the head because it's all about him. And it can be such a subtle difference. And we'll discuss that more <clears throat> as we uh, get to the next passage Paul goes from here in Colossians 2, he goes to Colossians 3, which is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Colossians 3 is, if you then be risen with Christ, 
He's basing that off of Colossians 2, verse 20. So if you died to all these elemental spirits, all these rituals of the world because of Christ, now you're risen with Christ. Seek those things which are above and live with him in mind and for eternity. And that is what our Christian life is really about. So Colossians 2 is the corrective passage on keeping crisis, the head, the, the negative. The, the, you can have an appearance of wisdom. You can have an appearance of godliness to a, adhering to a very strict you know, Christian life. But if Christ is not the head, it's only an appearance. It's an outward show, and it misses the true heart of Christianity. So let's go to the other passage, Ephesians chapter 1. It's nicer to focus on, on the positive Ephesians chapter 1. And let's see how Paul walks through this passage on keeping Christ as the head and how he lays out a pathway for us to do the same thing in our lives. We won't have time to read all this. So if you're open to homework from a church pulpit, go home on a Sabbath day and read Ephesians 1 through 3 which we're going to be referencing portions from. You can break the book of Ephesians really into two parts. Ephesians chapter one through three is about God and what he did for us. Ephesians chapter four, verse one, starts right off with, therefore walk worthy. And chapters four through six of Ephesians is what we do in our, in our walk with the Lord. <clears throat> but Paul starts out this, this journey of keeping Christ as the head while we're doing everything in our Christian life with these first three chapters in Ephesians chapter, chapter 1 through 3. We're going to read chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Then we're going to back up and read the verses before that. But in Ephesians 1, verses 22 through 23, this is the head passage. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ fills all in all. It's all through him. <clears throat> now let's back up and look at, as Paul in a, in a bunch of chapter one lays out what Christ did for us. Ephesians chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All of our spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, all of it comes through in being in Christ, through what Christ has done for us. Verse four, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God chose us, his people. Verse five, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God willed it and adopted us into his family. How awesome is that? You and I are part of the family of God, not because of us, but because of him. He did that for you and for me. Verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So he has blessed us, but it's not about us. It is to the praise of his grace glorious grace. It is about him for his glory and for his honor. Verse seven, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 
How are we redeemed? How are we forgiven? In him. His blood, forgiven from our trespasses because of the riches of his grace. How awesome is God, which he lavished on us. He lavished that grace on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So he even included us in understanding the mystery of the plans that he has for us and for his people. And it was according to his purpose. And he set it forth in Christ. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We have an inheritance because of him. Without him, we have no inheritance. Our Christian life, a part of it is about, and we'll touch on this at the end, but it's about fulfilling his plan and his call and his purpose and his inheritance. But in those things, we must remember that it's through him and it's about him. It's not about us. So he predestined us. He designed this for us. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So that we can show his glory because we first hoped in Christ and we can show that to those who don't yet know Christ for his glory. So Paul, as he's going through this, he is in awe of the awesomeness of God. And that is what we need to be in our Christian life as well. And we can get so caught up in all the doings of the Christian life that we forget what it's all about. It's about him, the head, the one who did all of these amazing things for us. And Paul is is jotting these things down for the Ephesians. And, And he even turns from there after he goes through all of these things in verse, now in verse 15, he says, for this reason, So because of all of these amazing things God has done, for this reason, Paul says, I don't cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. And then he prays this amazing prayer of blessing over them, which we'll skip for now and read a little bit later on. And then he says, Christ is the head. He put all things under the feet of Christ and gave the church, his body, the the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's go to chapter two and let's look at this contrast. So the awesomeness of God and what God has done for us in redeeming us, in paying for our sins, in loving us, in even giving us an inheritance and allowing us to show his glory. And in Ephesians two verse one, and you were so awesome. No, Ephesians two verse one, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So Paul now contrasts Christians, Christianity, people to what God has done. God is awesome and amazing. We were all sinners. We were undeserving. We were dead in the trespasses and in sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, so the ones who are not following Christ. 
among whom we all, and Paul includes himself in this, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And here we have another important key for keeping crisis the head. Not only do we need to remember the awesome things that God has done and that this Christian life is about him, we also need to remember our human state. We need to remember what we are without him. That we were dead in our sins and we were dead in our trespasses and he gave his very life for us. Now it contrasts back to God in verse four. But God... So we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So even while we were in this state, God, in his amazingness and in his rich mercy and in his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in those trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then the verse that most of us probably know, by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So now you know the context and the background to those verses, those, those three verses there in chapter two that we know very well that we're saved by grace through faith. The whole background context is God highlight, or Paul, sorry, highlighting the difference between how awesome God is and how amazing he is and what he has done for us with our sinful human state. And then, but God, even in the midst of all this, was so rich in mercy and love for us. This helps us to remember Christ as the head, Christ as the one who gave, Christ as the one who fills all in all, and that it's about him. Again, we're painting really a three-chapter background to keeping Christ as the head that Paul gives here. In, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 3, verse 13, we're not reading this. You can read this later. Paul talks about the body of Christ. And specifically, he talks about how amazing it is that God accepts the Gentiles into his family. The Jews had been accepted for a long time. And the Gentiles had been you know, outcasts. For the most part, there was the occasional one in the Old Testament, which I believe points to the fact that God would redeem or, or allow the Gentiles to become Christians in the New Testament. Um, but it didn't happen very often. But now, once Jesus Christ gave his life, it opened the chance for probably all of us, because I'm not sure how many of us here would call ourselves Jewish, so all of us who would be in the Gentile category to follow Christ, to be saved because of what Jesus did. So Paul talks about that in these verses, Ephesians 2, 11 through 3, 13. He spends a good amount of time on that. We're going to read chapter 3, verse 6, which just is a highlight verse in this passage. 
It says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the Gentiles are part of the family of God as well. How awesome is God that he did that for us. It's clear in this passage, and as I've been reading through the New Testament epistles, through other passages as well, Paul often talked about the body of Christ. And I would encourage you to look up and to, to study these passages about his body. They sometimes refer to Christ as the head and they refer to the church as the body, depends on which passage you're looking at. But there is one head. Who is the head? Christ. There is one body. Who is the body? His church, those who love him, those Christians who follow him. And, and that's very clear in teaching in the New Testament. One head, Christ. One body, the church, us as part of the church. And Paul even emphasizes in, in another passage in one of his epistles that there are different parts of the body. He actually does that in more than one passage. There are, just like we have different parts, we have, you know, ears and noses, and eyes, and fingers, and toes, and all sorts of different aspects of our body, there are different parts of the body of Christ. And I've often thought of this passage as like, well, you know, in, in my local church, there are different members who do different things. And it certainly has that teaching. It has that application. Some, you know, not everybody stands up behind a pulpit. Some people do other things. And, and Paul, in, his, in that passage, in one of those, he says, you know, some look down on others or some want to aspire to what another part has, but everybody needs to be in, in whatever part they are in the body of Christ. So there's good, good teaching on that in the New Testament. But it's also important to remember and, and glean from the New Testament that the worldwide church, the followers of Jesus Christ, are his body. We are all his body. You are either in the body of Christ or you are out of the body of Christ. And if you're not in the body of Christ, that means you're not a believer. You're not part of Christ. But as soon as somebody follows Jesus as their savior, they are in the body. And so Paul goes through this in, in Ephesians chapter two and chapter three as well with specifically the Gentiles and the Jews and how Christ opened the way for that. In Ephesians 3, verse 1, Paul does something that Paul does sometimes. He starts on one thought and then goes to another thought for a whole bunch of verses and then comes back to the thought that he was originally starting on. So in Ephesians 3, verse 1, he says, For this reason, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and you'll notice, depending on your translation, there's a hyphen or, or dots that carries. Now he's, he's going to another thought, but he picks up this, uh, thought from Ephesians 3, verse 1, in verse 14. So 3, 1 says, for this reason, I, Paul. And then in verse 14, for this reason. So now he's picking up the thought. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So understanding what Christ has done in opening Christianity to Jew and Gentile, to anybody in the world, because of that, I bow my knees to God, from whom, the whole, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, and now Paul prays another prayer of blessing over the Ephesian people because of what awesome things God has done for them. We'll read through this later on as well, but I want to notice <clears throat> two specific things in here. Verse 18, it says, may, that, 
um, you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And as I was reading through that, preparing for the message, that thought struck me. Paul said, not that you may have strength to, to run the race, which is part of our Christian life, that you may have strength to abstain from doing wrong things, which is part of our Christian life. But Paul says it also takes strength to understand how much God loves us. And he prayed that for the Ephesians, that you would have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It takes, I think, special strength from God, a special impartation from him to understand all that he has done for us and how much he loves his people. And then that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We had read in chapter one, verse 23, that Christ fills all things. He is all in all. And now Paul prays for the Ephesians and he says that you may be filled. You personally may be filled with all the fullness of God. An awesome prayer. Which again, we'll read through later as a benediction. Now we come to Ephesians 4. And we're not going to read through Ephesians 4 through 6, but the reason, and I think it's very important to note that the first three chapters talk about God and what God has done for us. And that gives us the basis for what we come to in Ephesians 4 through 6, which is walking worthy of him. In order to properly walk worthy of God and to keep him as our head, the main focus of our Christian life, we have to remember it's about him and it's about what he has done for us. And that helps us to walk worthy before him. And I wanna highlight, walking worthy of God is absolutely necessary. So please don't leave this message or leave today thinking that Stephen said, all I need to do is understand that God is awesome and that God loves me and that's it. Cause that's not it, but that is the main point that helps us in our walk with him as we seek to walk worthy. So here's the issue that we saw from the corrective passage in Colossians 2. You can't walk worthy of God unless he is your head. He has to be the head. If we fail to hold fast to the head, which admittedly can be easy to do and get focused on everything else, if we don't do that, we can't walk worthy of him. He must be in that place of preeminence in our lives. As the psalmist said in Psalm 24, verse 4, you know, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart. And we can have very clean hands, which is the outward actions, the things that we do. We can have very clean hands before the Lord and look really good, but our heart can be filthy. And we know this because we see examples of it in the Bible. We see Jesus talking to a whole group of people called the Pharisees. And he said, you guys look great on the outside. Everything is perfect. And people look to you as, you know, holy examples in, in, in the Israelite, you know, those who followed the Lord as their religious leaders. And yet Jesus said on the inside, you're filthy. Would not want to be in that state. But that tells us that that is possible for us too. That we can look really good on the outside, 
but our insides are not right with the Lord. And we know it, but we look good on the outside. And, and they ended up, so the end of that path, <clears throat> that, and, and this we see in their examples, that they looked down on others, they thought they were better than others, they thought very highly of themselves, and weren't really there serving God and his family, they were there for their own benefits. We can become, like it said in Colossians 2.23, we read earlier, with an appearance of wisdom, and it even says an appearance of humility, so it can look like we're wise and like we're humble, And yet, if Christ is not the head, if we've not held fast to him, it can be empty and worthless. And so in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, at this beginning port passage where Paul is talking about walking worthy, this is what he says, and this is important to note. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, so there's the word therefore, so based on everything we just read, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul says, I urge you in your Christian life to walk worthy. And I stand here beside, behind the pulpit and I urge all of us to walk worthy of the Lord. But as I do so, Paul starts this right with this basis, with humility, with gentleness, with patience, If I just try to walk worthy without remembering that it's about Christ and all that he has done for us, for me personally, bring this to a personal level, and it's about what he's done for me, I can be lifted up in pride. But Paul says, when you walk worthy, walk in humility. Remember that it's about him and less about you. And walk in gentleness because that perspective changes the way that I treat somebody else. Walk with patience because that perspective allows me to be more patient with other people. Bear one another in love and maintain a unity of the spirit in a bond of peace. So walking worthy has to be based on these. Christ is the head and that transforms how I walk worthy of him. Right in the middle of this walk worthy passage, we're going to Ephesians 4 verses 15 and 16. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Again, how is the body built? We saw this in a previous passage. Remembering Christ as the head, we grow up in Christ and in his body, and he from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, it works properly. So there's proper order, there's proper things in the body, but Christ is the head of the body. And then the body can be built up. In Ephesians chapter 5, we have the final head passage here in Ephesians excuse me, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So for those who came to the marriage study we were doing uh, a few Wednesday nights ago, we talked about this passage in husbands and wives and remembering that we reflect or are supposed to reflect the relationship between God and his church. 
in our marriage. <clears throat> and um, Christ is the head of the church, his body. He is its savior. And then it actually says in verses 25 through 28, and we'll read that, that the way that a husband loves his wife is supposed to represent how Christ loves his church. Verses 25 through 28, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, <clears throat> having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. So Paul is making an, an illustration, a comparison here with husbands and with wives and saying our marriage, for those you of you here who are married, men, our marriage is supposed to reflect God and his church. And men specifically as the head, aren't there ruling it over and commanding, but they are giving of themselves for. And they are the head, and yet they are serving. And it says that Christ has done that, you know, for his church. And, and I, I noticed this a couple months ago as I was reading through this, a few months ago, whenever I was looking at this passage in the last few months, um, I noticed this, how much it is about him and less about us in this passage. You know, it says, as Christ loved the church, so Christ loved the church, Christ gave himself for the church, Christ sanctified the church, Christ cleansed the church with washing of water with the word. Christ presents the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that the church would be holy and without blemish. This is the work of Christ. And that's not saying we don't have a part in our walk with him, but look at, and again, Paul is highlighting again the awesome things that God has done for his people. And, he, and we didn't deserve that. So in practically, I was thinking of this in our, our relationships with each other, because Christ said in our marriages, it's supposed to be a type of him and his church. <clears throat> and I was thinking of my own marriage and, and how Sarah and I relate to each other. And, you know, we definitely don't do this perfect, but we strive to be a godly, um, not really even trying to be an example, but we're trying to walk in the way that God wants us to walk in our marriage. And, and I was thinking of, of my wife and she doesn't do the, all the amazing things that she does at home. And, and I thank her probably not as much as I should, but I every now and again, thank her, like, thank you for taking care of our family and making sure that our home is taken care of and organized and all of this amazing stuff that you do. And I open the fridge or the cupboard and there's groceries there. And I don't even have to think about it because she takes care of all that, <clears throat> but she doesn't do all of those things because she's very stressed out that I won't like her if she doesn't do them. She doesn't do all those things because she's like, my husband's gonna divorce me if I don't. Absolutely not. She knows I love her and she knows I'm committed to her for the rest of our days. We made those commitments. So she does not serve out of that mindset. She serves our family out of love. And in this way, with Christ in the church and the marriage is the picture of that, we serve the Lord out of love. And Paul is painting this through this, like, look how much God loves you. Look how much he has done for you. And now serve him. Now walk worthy of him out of that. And that changes our relationship with him. 
that changes our mindset, that makes it much easier for it to be all about him. It's how our walk with him should be. So as we bring this to a conclusion, we have to hold fast to the head. We must in our Christian walk, and it takes work. Remember, Paul said, you know, to the ones in, the, in Colossae, in the book of Colossians, as he was in that corrective passage, he said, ones who are doing all these things, but not holding fast to the head. That idea of holding fast takes work, right? When you're holding fast, you're doing everything you can to hold on to that. And so sometimes holding fast to the head amongst everything else that we do takes tremendous effort to stay, you know, with that mindset because it's so easy to get caught up in everything else. I have to keep Christ as the head. And I jotted down a few things, you know, for me that are highlights in my Christian life and should be, I think, for all of us. I must keep him as the head and the main focus as I pursue things like walking worthy of him, as I pursue my calling, as I pursue the inheritance that he has for me, as I pursue the eternal reward that he has for me, as I, you know, seek to live for him and, and, you know, the idea that I would be preserved or kept safe as I do that, as I pursue hitting the mark that he has for me, as I pursue God's best for me, as I pursue seeing him move in my own life or in my church or, or my country or whatever it is. In all of these good things, I have to keep him as primary, as the one that I am pursuing. And all of these things fall underneath of that. Because if I just, if I Excuse the word divorce, but if I separate following Christ from all of these, I now just become, I don't know a better way to put it, it becomes about me. It becomes about my calling and my inheritance and my safety and the Lord meeting with me and all these which are fine things, but it's really about him as the head. And this is a comparison I was thinking about, and I hope it's a fair comparison, but there are, you know, a group of, a number of, of ones who live their Christian life seeking the blessings of the Lord. <clears throat> we call them, you know, the, the prosperity ones. They, they are, are after what the Lord can give them here on earth. And we understand biblically, if you've attended here long enough, that that's not what the Christian life is all about. It's not just about us having all sorts of great things because we're king's kids. That's not what it's about. It's about loving the Lord and seeking his best and, and living for him and all of these different things. And, and if those things come, they come. If they happen, they happen. But if my Christian life is only pursuing you know, all of these things I mentioned with my calling and my position and my inheritance and my eternal reward and all of these good things, they're not bad. There's nothing wrong with them. But if it's just about that, I really have a spiritual version of a prosperity gospel because it's all about me, not about him. The gospel is Christ. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. And everything we do flows out of that mindset of keeping him as the head. And as I said at the beginning, it is a very slight variation. It is something that probably nobody sitting next to you would know. 
because this is in your head and in your heart, and in my head and in my heart. Am I pursuing Christ or am I pursuing all these other things? And I've lost sight of keeping Christ as the main focus, as the head. I have to. And so bringing this back to Christmas to make it applicable for right now, because the general message is our whole Christian life. But right now, as we're heading into now these, what, three, three and a half intensive weeks for most of us leading up to Christmas time, I encourage you and myself, all of us, to remember that it's all about him. And all the other stuff we have going on, all of those, many of those are good things, but we have to remember it's about the Lord Jesus Christ, about him coming to earth, about him loving us enough to give his life for us, that we would be saved and we would be in his family and we would have an inheritance and all of these things because of him. So Christmas must be based on that. I'm going to conclude with a benediction, and I'm going to read, in remembering the awesomeness of God, Paul prayed two specific prayers of thanks and benediction to the Ephesians, and I'm going to pray that for all of us today. So you can close your eyes like this is a prayer, or you're, I mean, you're welcome to listen, or just open your eyes as well. It's a benediction more so. <clears throat> but this is Ephesians 1, 17 through the beginning of 19. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us to believe, toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. And over in Ephesians 3, verses 16 through 19, I also pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. And after Paul prayed that in Ephesians 2, he said, after all of this, this is the conclusion of the amazing uh, things that God has done in the prayer that Paul prayed. And then he says in verses 20 and 21, now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think, according to the power at work at, at within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul goes through all of this and he says, and you know what, guys? God can even do far more abundantly above all that we can even humanly comprehend. To him be glory. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. Keep Christ as the head and the focus of your life.